0: Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host Sean Cheatham, and we have our brother Andrew Work back with us today to help us work through these difficult topics. Um, we're going to be going through um, an article that Doug Wilson put on his um, blog, Blog and Mablog, um, called 11 Reasons Why We Should Not Consider Thomism to Be the Theological Equivalent of the Butterfly's Boots. Um, you, know, you can. This was published Wednesday, September 28th, um if you want to go back and read it for yourself which we would encourage you to so you can see these things for yourself but we're going to be reading through the entire article um and the way we're going to do this i'm going to read you know because he breaks it up into 11 points read a point we'll talk and discuss and then we'll just move on et cetera, etc um so we're going to hop into that uh real quick here so we're going to dive right in it says Quote, I write as someone who is happy to include Thomas as abiding within the Christian pale, and I am more than willing to fellowship together with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, R.C. Sproul was a Thomas, and I was honored to be invited on various occasions to speak at his conferences. At the same time, I believe that there is some bad juju here, as in something smells funny. And I thought that out of simple consideration for all my friends here in the school of Prophets' cafeteria, I was under some obligation to raise the cry that there was death in the pot, Second Kings 4.40. Allow me to itemize my concerns. First, I believe that if we get the simplicity of God wrong, it will not be long before we get the simplicity of the gospel wrong. Errors about the Godhead are headwater errors, and they necessarily cascade downstream. All classical theists affirm that God, in his essence, is immutable, impassable, and characterized by divine simplicity. This is to say that God is not the sum of his parts. He's not a composite being, and there are ways to affirm this which go too far and which therefore threaten the simplicity of the gospel. Um, I appreciate that, actually. Um, I think there's a lot that can be said in that first section that is very helpful. He is right. Simplicity is a gospel issue. It does have implications for um, the gospel as it relates to, especially the person of Christ, if we start toying around with um, the Godhead, it will eventually uh, lead to problems with the incarnation and who Christ is. And then that inevitably affects uh, the work on the cross, which is the gospel. So I appreciate that. And I think he's right in saying that, although we'll see that his conclusions on this whole matter end up falling off the edge somewhere. Um, But you guys have anything to add to that?
1: Absolutely. Because if Christ isn't the same, fully infinite God as the Father, Mm -hmm. the sacrifice on the cross would not have the worth and the glory necessary to redeem the infinite weight of the sins of his people. So it's only Mm -hmm. Christ as fully God that we have salvation.
2: Then I just wanted to make a a brief comment on uh, the term Thomism. Um, We wouldn't even necessarily like the term Thomism applied to us. Uh, It does get thrown around in the doctrine of God debate, uh, which is a little unfortunate because unlike something like uh, Calvinism, where when you use the term Calvinism, you know that, okay, this is somebody who believes the five points. It's not necessarily that they follow Calvin on everything um, because oftentimes Calvinists are Baptists and obviously not following Calvin on that. Thomism, it's a little... um, I'm not sure it's communicating to people that um, they, uh, these people are some people that hold uh, the same view that Thomas did on the doctrine of God. I think it's a little bit broader than that. So I'm not necessarily accusing Doug Wilson of anything or being malicious because that is the term that often gets uh, labeled with uh, people like us. But I did want to have that clarification up front that um, as the article, as we're going through the article, we're going to be defending the position that he's calling Thomism. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, we like the term yeah
1: i'm not aware of thomism being used in the way that he's using it when it will get into things like divine immobility and the like i don't i'm not aware of it ever historically being used for people who embrace doctrines like that that's just classical theism at large and we'll get into that more later as we go around uh thomism like as a name i think mostly has been distinguished by some of his views, like including his sacramentalism or which we would absolutely denounce. Uh, we, we do, mm-hmm. we do not follow him on those things uh, or maybe perhaps the, the Thomas versus John Scotus uh, debate, if you want to call it, although like Scotus was a bit after Thomas, so it's not really a debate um, between them per se, but against their ideas uh, where uh, Scotus had a, uh, at least a logical university of being for the being of God. In other words, he's saying the same thing by being when he's talking about God and when he's talking about creatures, which Thomas wouldn't and his followers wouldn't. And so that's the analogy versus university debate, which we, we had an episode on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would be with Thomas on that end, but that's not what's being discussed here. What's being discussed is actually more basic concepts of what do we mean when we say God's immutable? And there's nothing uniquely Thomistic about what we believe about God's immutability. This is classical theism, properly, and we'll and we'll substantiate that as we go on.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's very important because we're. It's easy to get into these modern. Really, I think they're modern categories. They're not categories that really would have been applied at their time. Yeah, there were differences in, in like you mentioned, Scotus and Aquinas, but. Um, it wasn't seen as like you're a, you're a Thomist and then you're a Scotist over here necessarily. It was, we believe these core biblical truths about God and this is what we confess. And they were even taken for granted. It was just assumed. You know, it wasn't like we're, we're coming up with all these different schools of thought that had such fundamental differences um, that like it's presented um, in today's world. So I think the terminology isn't helpful and it doesn't really help us to see the broader picture, and that's what we're hoping to show today in this, is that we're talking about Catholicity, meaning universal, the universal church, identifying ourselves with the church as a whole where they followed Scripture on the doctrine of God.
1: Yep, and and as opposite as somebody, uh, as Scotus and Thomas would be on the spectrum of theology proper, that's kind of a, the, the two farthest like, points from each other in that day, and yet on these issues, I'm not aware of any disagreement they would have about uh, there being no motion in God, for example.
0: Right. Yep. All right, point number two. He says, second, while I believe we need to honor Aristotle as someone who is beyond brilliant, we need to remember that he was, in fact, a pagan. Thomas Aquinas was determined to baptize him, but there are good reasons for thinking he didn't get him all the way under. There is therefore a vast difference between accepting what Aristotle plainly recognized about logic, for example, identifying the laws of thought, and what Aristotle embraced as his metaphysical assumptions. There is therefore a big difference between Reformed scholastics, who adopted rigorous processes of reasoning from scriptural premises and medieval scholastics following Thomas, who applied the same method of rigorous reasoning, for example, to the Aristotelian assumption that God is immobile. that's point number two.
1: Yeah, and, and there you have it. Um, again, he says he, he's saying that there's these Aristotelian metaphysical assumptions that lead mm-hmm. to Thomas's uh, doctrine of divine immobility, as he calls it. Again, this wouldn't have been distinguished from immutability in the past, no. but but he calls it immobility. Uh, but I would at, like to ask, what uniquely Aristotelian metaphysics result in Thomas's divine immobility, and why is it then that people who didn't follow Aristotle as much, such as many of the early Church Fathers, tended more towards Plato than they did mm-hmm. Aristotle? Although I do think we can say there's some broad shared metaphysical understandings between the two. Yet they, they had this same doctrine uh, that Thomas would have uh, later. Remember, divine simplicity. When we when we're talking about God being without parts, it was never up to debate that he was without body parts right that was never an aspect of debate um when we say he's simple we mean he's he's devoid of parts altogether, including metaphysical parts, which would have the exact same issue as having body parts would have. In other words, making him dependent on things that are not himself in order to be the way he is, which would make him a derivative being. And then statements of scripture such as of him, through him, and to him are all things would no longer be true because because there's a thing that wasn't of him and actually produced him. If you have these parts that compose what he is, he's not a composite being in any sense. Also, it comes from the idea of God being identical with his being. You might think of Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. Not merely I am what I am, but I am that I am. He is his own being, and when people were affirming divine simplicity, that's what they meant. And we should understand with being, being isn't a substrate where you can change qualities, add qualities to, and if he's and you can't change for something that's simply its being. You can't change any aspect of what it is without changing that it is. And so that's the big issue with having any change with God. Also, just the fact that he's infinite. He is infinity. He is infinite being, which doesn't just mean unlimited source of power or anything. It means all-encompassing without boundaries. There's no power behind any isness that isn't prepossessed by him who who is— who is the infinite in the sufficient cause for all things that are and all things that possibly could be. So the moment you say he can move from one state to another, whether through physical movement or, or, or uh, metaphysical movement, uh, you're saying there's some kind of state that wasn't encompassed by his being. And that's, that's where you get these problems coming in. Now, with all that said, I want to address the historical issue here because he very ma- much makes it sound like this is this weird Thomistic thing by, because he, Borrowed Aristotle, and it's not really what the classical theists before him believed is the implication, and not what the reformers did. So I want to read you some some people before uh, Aquinas, and we're going to start very early with Hippolytus. This is from Philip Schaff's translation from uh, the fragments of Hippolytus's discourses against uh, Baron and Helix, um, two heretics of his own days. Um, so Hippolytus, for people who don't know, uh, he lived in the end of the second century, early third century. So this was probably written around the year 200 AD. Before Nicaea. Before Nicaea, over a thousand years before Aquinas was even born. And and listen to what he says. He's one of the biggest, most influential theologians of this day. This isn't some rare, obscure figure. Quote, by the omnipotent will of God, all things are made, and the things that are made are also preserved, being maintained according to their several principles in perfect harmony by him who is in his nature the omnipotent God and maker of all things. His divine will, remaining unalterable by which he has made and moves all things, sustained as they severally are by their own natural laws, uh, for the infinite cannot in any manner or by any account be susceptible of Movement, inasmuch as it has nothing towards which and nothing around which it shall be moved. For in the case of that which is in its nature infinite and so incapable of being moved, movement would be conversion. And then he actually goes on to talk about the incarnation after that, and it's bearing on that. Wherefore also the word of God being made truly man in our manner, yet without sin, and acting and enduring in man's ways such sinless things as are proper to our nature, and assuming the circumscription of the flesh of our nature on our behalf, sustained no conversion in that aspect in which he is one with the Father. So again, he explicitly singles out movement. There's no movement in God because he has nothing which he would move towards or away from. He's, he's infinity it, itself. And further, when the Son became incarnate, when the Son was sent from the Father, it, it, there was no change or movement in him when that occurred either, which is actually a point that's going to be brought up later. So that's Hippolytus around the year 200, but we're going to keep going. I don't want you to think this is just one guy. Athanasius nations of Alexandria, the, the chief theologian of Nicaea, uh, from his work Against the Heathen. This is section 42 of Against the Heathen. Uh, For just as though some musician, having tuned a lyre, and by his art adjusted the high notes to the low and the intermediate notes to the rest were to produce a single tune as the result so also the wisdom of god handling the universe as a liar and adjusting things in the air to the things on the earth and things in the heaven to things in the air and combining parts into holes and moving them all by his beck and will produces well and fittingly as the result the unity of the universe and of its order himself remaining unmoved ...with the father while he moves all things by his organizing action as seems good for each to his own father... So there you have movement right there, and I'm going to continue reading a little bit because this will plan our discussion later. For what is surprising in his Godhead is this, that by one and the same act of will, so one act of will, he moves all things simultaneously and not at intervals, but all collectively, both straight and curved, things above and beneath and intermediate, wet, cold, warm, seen and invisible, and orders them according to their several nature. For simultaneously at his single nod, what is straight moves as straight, what is curved also, and what is intermediate follows its own movement. So one act of will, while he remains motionless, he produces all things in motion, being sufficient in himself for the creation of all the diverse things that we see in the world and having nothing lacking in his being. And then finally, around um, the 8th century, Here, we have John of Damascus, who's uh, essentially the chief, would become the chief theologian of the Eastern Orthodox uh, branch. Um, So this is from chapter four of the first book on his exposition of the Orthodox faith. But if some say that the body is immaterial in the same way as the fifth body of which the Greek philosophers speak, and he's talking about the body of God here. Which body is an impossibility? So the fifth body of the Greeks is an impossibility. Uh, I continue. Quote, it will be wholly subject to motion like the heaven. For that is what they mean by the fifth body. Who then is it that moves it? For everything that is moved is moved by another thing. And who again is it that moves that? And so on to infinity till we at length arrive at something motionless. For the first mover is motionless and that is the deity. And must not that which is moved be circumscribed in space? The deity then alone is motionless, moving the universe by immobility, end quote. There's even the phrase right there, immobility. So God, the unmoved mover, moves everything about him. So that's the early church. This is the consensus view of these chief theologians I've mentioned. And I I didn't search long and hard for them. I essentially picked three guys and looked on... Them discussing immutability, and lo and behold, they talk about motion. We could probably add to this list indefinitely, but I wanted to at least show you a representative uh, range of works for that. Um, and I'm also going to quote to uh, quote some uh, post reformers. Uh, although, if you guys want to say anything before I do that, you can. No, go ahead. Go ahead.
2: All right.
0: Or oh, Sean, did you were you going to say
2: something? Uh, well, the only comment I was going to make is. Um from the opposite side of this debate um i don't see a lot of interaction with the history or, or proving mm-hmm. the case from history it's more no. just of an assertion that oh this is new and mm-hmm. it might be new in the sense um that uh most of the teachers in the modern period taught otherwise although i'd, I'd have to even look into that but i i've not really seen a concerted effort to prove well, okay. Well, here's the reformers, and here's them talking about motion in God. Um, here's uh, pre-Nicaea people talking about motion of God. Um, I'm not saying that there isn't one out there, but I, I do find it interesting that it's just sort of asserted. Oh, yeah, this is the view of the church, and then Thomas came up with this um, this weird immobility view. Whereas I think it's the opposite, and I really haven't seen anybody been able to prove that anyone. Held to the view prior i'm not saying that there, we can't uh there aren't sources out there that say otherwise but i'm, I'm i haven't seen a, an effort yeah uh, if, the if they're,
1: they're there if they're there i haven't seen them i am I, I have no awareness and of you definitely
0: don't see it otherwise. from the main guys who are opposing uh, this position like james white jeff johnson they're, when they do do historical analysis of these things it appears it's it's garbage especially mm-hmm. what we saw with jeff johnson You know, misquoting John Owen or using um, bad translations or whatever it might be, Um, just not doing the homework to be able to prove their point. Yet we don't have to do much homework and be scholars to find, um, you know, some of these quotes that prove them wrong. I mean, this is not difficult to do. It's really a modern contemporary understanding. It just doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to reject it without really doing the homework to back it up, exegetically or historically.
1: Yeah, it, it, this should be a challenge to people on the other side. If yeah. you think that Thomas brought this doctrine around, well, I've already proven that he didn't actually this point, right. You can't really disprove the quotes that I just gave you. It's historical fiction, if that's what you think. You're just objectively wrong. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of historical fact. Um, but if you want to say there is like this, this truly classical and historical view where there is motion in God, show it to me i haven't mm-hmm. seen any i've read jeff johnson's book i've listened to quite a lot of material from people on their side and if it's out there where they try to show this i haven't come across it yet it's, it, it, it's just asserted and it's it's not good history so anyway so to con, to continue now to the reformed here i'm gonna i'm just gonna quote two guys uh stephen charnock and i'll quote john gill as well so this is from charnock's work on the immutability of god which if you just read that you all things would be straightened out for you but um i'll read this little expert here excerpt excuse me <clears throat> quote god is unchangeable in his essence nature and perfections immutability and eternity are linked together and indeed true eternity is true immutability whence eternity is defined the possession of an immutable life yet immutability differs from eternity in our conception." Immutability respects the essence or existence of a thing. Eternity respects the duration of a being in that state, or rather, immutability is the state itself. Eternity is the measure of that state. A thing is said to be changed when it is otherwise, now in regard of nature, state, will, or any quality than it was before, when either something is added to it or taken from it, when it either loses or acquires. But now, it is the essential property of God not to have any accession to or diminution diminution of his essence or attributes, but to remain entirely the same. He wants nothing, he loses nothing, but doth uniformly exist by himself without any new nature, new thoughts, new will, new purpose, or new place. This unchangeableness of God was anciently represented by the figure of a cube, a piece of metal or wood framed four-square. When every side is exactly of the same equality, cast it which way you will. It will always be the same posture because it is equal to itself in all its dimensions. He was therefore said to be the center of all things and other things in the circumference. The center is never moved while the circumference is. It remains immovable in the midst of the circle. There is no variableness nor shadow of turning with him. Uh, I think that's sufficient for Stephen Charnock right there. Um, now moving to John Gill. Uh, this is from uh, his body of doctrinal divinity uh, on his section on the, the attributes of God in general and of his immutability in particular. Quote, God is the most perfect being and therefore can admit of no change in his nature, neither of increase nor decrease, of addition nor diminution. If he changes, it must be either for the better or the worse. If for the better, then he was imperfect before and so not God. If for the worse, then he becomes imperfect and the same follows. A like reasoning is used by Plato and by another ancient philosopher who asserts that God is good, impassible, and unchangeable. For whatever is changed, says he, is either for the better or the worse. If for the worse, it becomes bad. And if for the better, it was bad at first. Or if he changes from an infinitely perfect state to another equally so, then there must be more infinites than one, which is a contradiction because an infinite must contain all things. I continue, quote, again, if any change is made in him, it must be either from somewhat within him or from somewhat. ...without him. If from within he must consist of parts, there must be another and another in him. He must consist of act and power. There must be not only something active in him to work upon him, but a passive power to be uh, wrought upon which is contrary to his simplicity already established. For as a Jew well argues, what necessarily exists of itself has no other cause by which it can be changed, nor that which changes and that which is changed cannot be together. For so there would be in it two, one which changes and another which is changed. And so would be compound, which is inconsistent with the simplicity of God. If from somewhat without him, then there must be a superior to him able to move and change him. But he is the most high God there is none in heaven nor in earth above him he is God over all blessed forever end quote so you see with Gil like with the rest of them God isn't moved he's not moved by anything within him and he can't be moved from himself because then there'd be have to be an active part and a passive part within himself which would imply composition and we know there is no composition in God he being truly uh all that he is all that is in God is God
0: Yes. No, that's very helpful. It just it helps us to see this long stream of unity with <laughs> throughout the church and even seeing that the Reformed, especially the high Reformed, were just receiving what had been taught consistently throughout the church. It was They weren't coming up with anything new, maybe developing the language a little bit better or refining their usage of language, but they're just confessing what had been taught before. It's just so basic to them.
1: You can even see them uh, using the same exact arguments. It's not even the same right. position. It's the same arguments. You you had um, uh, John Gill right there. He's even referencing Plato, and he's using the <laughs> same arguments from. John Gill likes to reference the philosophers. <laughs> John of Damascus's argument very much represents the uh, one of the, the the five cosmological arguments that Aquinas uses later where it's like there must be a, a first unmoved mover that moved all things. So it's the argument for motion. Um, so there's and that's hundreds of years before Aquinas. So there's nothing new about any of the things that are being said here.
0: The only thing that's new is what these guys who oppose these positions are doing today.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And it seems their tradition only stretches back maybe the last hundred years. And the further yeah. back you go, actually, the better those guys are. Like um Van Tilden say the kind of stuff that people were saying today with the doctrine of God. It's Ironically, because doctrine.
0: it tends to be the Vantillians that fall into these issues.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Vantill himself didn't go there. You know, right,
0: it's, it's, exactly.
1: Again, there's just been this divergence. But but yeah, it seems like church history began about 100 years ago for some people. <laughs> um, and But but then they argue from it, not from Scripture, because they, they're okay with— oh yeah, the implications that God can't have body parts and they'll, they'll use the same logic that people use for not him not having metaphysical parts, but there's like, well, it should only apply as far as bodies, but not as far as body parts, but not as far as metaphysical parts. And they don't give any reason for that. Why like that's the cutoff and not the other. So you have to ask, well, is it just tradition? Because you guys say for that long, well, well then where is your argument about uh, Sola Scriptura? Because uh, you, you claim we're not exercising uh, solar scriptura when we lean on the wisdom of of men older than us who themselves gone through the text of scripture and try to work out the implications of it like Jesus himself gives us the example of doing by the way as Sean's article has has shown so again like a lot it's it's a very confusing thing it's like oh go this far but don't go it's not even a further step it's the same step he doesn't have parts it's like go the steps denying body parts but not metaphysical parts no this is just a natural consequence of him being fullness of being he has he
2: has no parts
0: yep sean anything to add nope i think
2: we can move on to the next question all right or, uh, next point <laughs> All yeah, right. we've
1: spent a lot of time on that one I apologize oh, but I wanted
0: to lay unfortunately there. sometimes you have to you got to dig into the material if we're going to prove our point let's not be like these guys and just give generic statements right it's like here let's dive into the history dive into the text and mine this out which we can it just it just takes time yep uh, somebody said uh, dividing line response video yeah <laughs> We'll see. Somebody's gonna share it with him. Somebody's gonna, yeah. Well, we've been on the dividing line before, so wouldn't be anything new. All right, so number three. Uh, third, the resurgence of Thomistic thinking in the reformed world today wants to represent it as the touchstone of classical theological orthodoxy. While it is true that everyone who believes certain things about God believes them to be true, and that therefore those who differ are affirming something that is believed to be false and there is no getting away from that, it has to be said that the Thomistic revival is being pretty aggressive about all of this. But if Thomism is the touchstone of orthodoxy, then where does that leave theologians like Luther, who hated Aristotle, Melanchthon, Calvin, many of the Puritans, Dabney, Hodge, Warfield, Bavink, Burkhoff, Voss, Van Til, Schaefer, Packer, et al. Why can I not hang with these guys and still be a classical theist? I think we should. So this... I think this goes back to Sean's point earlier, you know, about we're, we're not saying, and I don't think anyone has actually asserted this, um, that Thomism is the touchstone of classical theism. We're not stopping there. We're going beyond that and saying that this is what the church has confessed as a whole. And Thomas really is just working out the implications of that, building upon and believing what the church, the Orthodox church has taught and maybe redefine, you know, refining the language or working out some of those implications and putting it in a more systematic way, but he's not coming up with anything fundamentally new. And and again, this is kind of the the implication that we're getting here. Well, it's the touchstone of classical theism. If you don't believe in Thomism, you're not really believing in the God of the Bible. That's not what we're saying. Um, Certainly Thomas is helpful, but you can still be a classical theist and not utilize Thomas to do that. Um, so we want to be very clear on that. Uh, were you going to say something, Andrew?
1: Uh, just that, yeah, the touchstone that's being talked about here is simply immutability. There's nothing yeah. There's nothing <laughs> uniquely Thomistic about his concept of immutability. Exactly. We've already demonstrated this robustly, and the other side's not doing that kind of work. They just assert it. That's Thomism. It's not. It's not. It's not Thomism.
0: Yes. And then, you know, talking about making assertions, some of these um, men that he lists here um it, it's very interesting he tries to lump them all in as not liking aristotle and or thomas um and i want to dive a little bit into that because i think this is uh, this is important uh with regards to luther sure he didn't like aristotle um but he did have a traditional doctrine of god um, if you look at david Sitzma, who wrote an article for kudo magazine talking about the reception of thomas he talks about luther and um makes a citation Uh, from a person named Louis, he says that Luther's doctrine of God, writes Louis, remains overwhelmingly traditional and decidedly medieval in its material commitments. So whatever you want to say about Luther's understanding of Aristotle, it doesn't mean he had a fundamental different uh, doctrine of God. Um, Some of this was, there was kind of this hesitation against um, philosophers at the time of the Reformation, and, and I think even in the Catholic Church, um, so that's to be expected, but that doesn't mean that his doctrine of God was necessarily fundamentally different than what the church um, had taught. And that's very that's really the issue. It's not really the philosopher per se. The issue is Luther still had an orthodox doctrine of God, regardless of what he thought of Aristotle. You're well, going to say something, John?
2: Yeah, no, it's its a very important point because you, you do hear, well, Calvin uh, disliked Aquinas. It's like, yes, but did he dislike Aquinas on the doctrine of God? Because um, I, I have uh, disagreements with Calvin. I have disagreements with Luther. Uh, uh, I could name a lot of them. But that doesn't mean I'm going to stop quoting Luther. It doesn't mean right. I'm going to stop quoting Calvin. And it doesn't mean they're not right on certain issues. Um, so I, just because you can pull up a quote of somebody from church history bashing Aquinas doesn't mean they actually disagreed on the doctrine of God. You need to go further than that and specifically show... Where they deny immobility, um, that's that's what's necessary, um, and I, it does seem, and uh, just like we see here, that a lot of times it's like, well, this person didn't like that person. It's like, well, that's that's not good enough.
0: Yeah, no, that it's it's too generic of a, a response, and and Aquinas theology is too broad to just say that if you if this theologian didn't like him, we should just re- you know, this, this theologian didn't like anything he said. That's, that's not nuanced enough. It's not honest. It's not good scholarship either because good scholarship requires you to cite sources and bring forth your arguments based Mm -hmm. on primary and secondary sources, not based on mere assertions.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I I recognize this is a, this is a blog post. It's a little bit shorter form. I'm not necessarily expecting Doug Wilson to have cited everything but I do. I did find as I was going through this, there were a lot of assertions that are, I was like, "Well, you, you're going to need to show some show some work for that." Um, Especially
0: if you make it, historical assertions, you need to back mm-hmm. it up. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this person didn't like this, but I'm not going to quote anything or give any reference. Oh, go check out this person who talks about it. Nothing. It's mm-hmm. just well, mm-hmm. Calvin didn't like this guy. Okay, and it might prove anything.
2: <laughs> it might even be that. Wilson hasn't done a lot of research in of himself like I'm not expecting people to be scholars in church history just because they're they're you know a big name or whatever
0: right um, but, uh, but if you make least, the assertion be able to back yeah it
2: up. he is he is <laughs> parroting a lot of what we hear just in general and at some point somebody needs to to bring forth the evidence
0: right Andrew you're gonna say something
2: uh, n- not nothing that adds to
0: what's already been said okay all right um You know, talking a little bit about Luther's friend Melanchthon, um, Melanchthon actually was a big friend of Aristotle, or not a friend, but actually a very big supporter of Aristotle. Um, He wrote a commentary on Aristotle's ethics, and I believe he was the first one to do so, um, and saw Aristotle as very helpful. And then, of course, he was probably one of the editors or authors of the Augsburg Confession, which had a very... um, Catholicity understanding of the doctrine of God, very traditional understanding of the doctrine of God. And in fact, um, the Catholic Church wrote a confutation. It's called Confutation, a response to it. And this is for Article One of the Oxford Confession. And they were very much in agreement with it. Um, and they would have likely been coming at this from what you know we're calling a Thomistic vein or or a traditional vein of the doctrine of God. Um and, and so some of these, again, this is where the nuance has to be played in. Yes, they might have been critical of certain things, but they weren't necessarily denying on these key points that actually are relevant um, to our discussion. Even with Calvin, Calvin had issues with the philosophers. Again, this was common, criticizing the philosophers, the schoolmen, as, as would have been used. That's very common. Um, but again, there's nuance there that has to be used. Um, Calvin in particular, there are some areas of agreement. Between him and and Aquinas in particular, especially on the doctrine of predestination, there was some agreement there, Um, So, and very clear agreement between them as it relates to the exegesis of Romans 9. Um, So it's not as disjointed as as Wilson would like us to believe, because when you make mere assertions without talking about nuance or bringing up actual evidence to back it up, it makes it seem like you're just broad-brushing. Um, and that's just not how we do um, historical studies. And certainly, if you want your credibility to be intact, that's not how you do argumentation. All right. Point number four. Fourth, while it is good that we are looking for arguments that can defend against the assertions of open theists, so while Thomism promises to supply such arguments, it is my fear that a Thomism rigorously, rigor, rigorously pursued will result in a slab of frozen infinite deity that open theists have confused with the God of the Bible. Open theists caricature of the biblical doctrine of God, but there are corners of the Thomist world where it is not really that much of a caricature. When this happens, it is not really so much an answer to the open theists as it is a doctrine that gives open theists more plausibility than they should have. I, I think this is a very weak argument. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I wrote down here, it's like saying that we shouldn't believe in God's eternal decree because that makes it look like those who believe in libertarian free to those who believe in libertarian free will, that we are puppets and not responsible just because it might, uh, appear to be something that would give the other side ammo doesn't mean that our argument is invalid. It's the other side that's misunderstanding the argument. That's the issue. Um, instead of the argument being implausible or incorrect, um, I don't find that to be convincing at all.
2: And similar to how he says, um, what's his exact wording? That there's some corners of uh, the Thomistic world where it's not much of a distinction. You could say right. the same thing with hyper Calvinists, right? Well, right. hyper Calvinist looks very much what the open theist worst fear is, uh, but that doesn't negate the truth of uh, the truth of Calvinism. Um, and I also I haven't necessarily seen that, although I, I can't say I'm. I'm super well-versed in all corners of what's called the Thomistic world, but uh, I haven't necessarily seen that either, so it would be another nice spot for a a source. Again, not saying that in this short blog post, every single thing has to be sourced, but um, when you're asserting a lot of things and each time we end up having problems with it, some sources would be helpful. (laughs) Uh, And honestly,
1: with this frozen slab of deity thing, that's, to me, that's just an example about analogies not being helpful right because you're you're trying to you're trying to visualize something that's not just higher than you by degree or measure but like qualitatively uh, and categorically higher than you and you don't have any visual experience of it so of course if you try to visualize it if you if your thought is oh this is something utterly unlike me you're only going to be visualizing things that are beneath you categorically and qualitatively because you can't visualize, have no mental experience of things that are above you in that way. It's like if you asked a two-dimensional person to visualize the third dimension, they couldn't do it. They, if you said, well, his dimensional life is utterly unlike you, or you might think of, well, I can visualize first-dimensional things and, and how they're utterly unlike me, but it, you, you see how you, you, you easily start to look to things beneath you Without just in humility submitting to the fact, yes, he's unlike me because he's absolutely superior to me, right? And I shouldn't expect to be able to uh, uh, imagine it well. His otherness isn't because he's like things that are less than us, but because he's so much above us, and that's why we can't visualize him well he doesn't have any of the weaknesses that creatures have that make motion and change necessary for us or even desirable because he accomplishes it all with like as athanasius said with a single nod willing all things that are are in perfection in measure in wisdom without needing any time to think about it elaborate plan about it that should just leave us in awe about how much more wonderful god is But instead, what we get is like, oh, that sounds too much like a slab to me. Well, how about you're the slab in the eyes of God? (laughs) Because that's the better comparison. It's like, look at these weak things that need all this time to think about what they're doing next. And then they have to work here and then work there. Our God is infinitely above that.
0: Yeah. And two things kind of following up on that. One, um, this is kind of it really is a Socinian mindset. And I was listening to Richard Mueller on it is a lecture he gave like a week ago at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary on John Owen and reason and faith. And he talks about how like the Sassanians, uh the Socinian era was that you could comprehend God with your reason. Right. And then we reject anything that doesn't fit into my finite understanding of who God is. Um, And this is the same kind of thought that we're finding. Well, this makes God seem like a, a slab of frozen meat. So I'm just not going to reject this idea of an immovable God. Um, that is uh, that is really how the Socinians went to heresy. And if it's taken to its logical conclusion, it can be dangerous. Um, another thing, too, this, I think, has a misunderstanding of what Actus Pyrrhus is. Actus Pyrrhus is not some stone in the sky. Actus purus means that God is fully actualized. There is yes. a fully actualized being. Um, he's not just some frozen slab in the sky that doesn't do anything. Um, so I, I think it's misunderstanding those um, de- proper definitions, ba- very basic definitions when we're talking about simplicity and immutability.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. Point five. Fifth. I'm consequently concerned about the creeping assumption that classical theism is Thomism. While I believe that Thomas are classical theists, I want to maintain that, that a more consistent classical theism is to be found elsewhere. There is a more excellent way. It is a false choice that says we must choose between Thomism and what is called mutualism, any view of God which denies simplicity, impassibility, and immutability, mutualism, would include process theology, open theism, or pantheism. No, there is a classical theism that begins and ends with scriptural exegesis and not with Aristotle's idea of the divine. I think we've already addressed this.
1: Yeah, it seems much like the same point. Yeah, he's. I think he's
0: kind of repeating here. himself.
1: Yeah, and it ignores the scriptural exegesis that we have done in the past. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just always kind of thrown out there a lot. It's like, oh, well, we're coming from this is from the Bible, and you guys are coming about it through philosophy. Like, No, we're we wouldn't be saying these things that we are unless we've already had the god of the bible revealed to us and his independence from all creaturely things and the like yes yeah, some of this you could also learn from the light of nature but it's in, we've we've done the legwork to show that hey from scripture these are necessary conclusions not mm-hmm. just from what you see but also from what the word of god reveals about god and his independence and um his absolute dissimilarity between himself and other things, and that he's the uh, efficient cause, the sufficient cause, I should even say, of all things that are or could possibly be. This is These are the logical consequences of it. So I, I, I take issue with that. It's constantly asserted, like, oh, you're not beginning and ending with scriptural exegesis. When we, Our works that people on our side have done on this reference and interweave scripture constantly, back and forth and we've dealt with like whatever like at least when we're reviewing jeff johnson's work in the like we've dealt with the, the scripture texts that come up there and it's just ignored it, it's like it's almost like we're being gaslit like oh you're not doing the things that you're doing all the time like what <laughs> Sh- show 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 where our exegesis falls short you know our it, and if you do you have to at least acknowledge that we are trying to to show these mm-hmm. things from exegesis so y- you can't have it both ways
0: and, yeah, and there's been you know, tons of people on our side who have, you know, there's been whole books, thick books written on these topics and describing these things. Yes, under working out the metaphysical understandings, but the, the biblical understandings too. What are the implications of these texts? It says this, so what does that mean down the line necessarily? Mm-hmm. And that actually kind of gets into uh, the sixth point here. Uh, it says, six, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. For the things revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may keep the words of this law, Deuteronomy 29.29. 29. We are to study the world God made, Psalm 1:11-2. We are to study his word, Psalm 1:19-11. We are to consider his works ad intra, only when we are given plain revelation concerning it, John 17.24, and provided we take our shoes off first in deep humility, Exodus 3.5. But if we, without scriptural warrant, start disputing about how God thinks about things when he is all by himself, we have crossed some pretty serious lines. Not only so, but we have neglected to consider how many troubles in the theological world are created by smart people. They really ought to stop it. Now this is, I think, a key... Thank you for listening to part one of our episode today. Tune in next week as we release part two. Thank you.